Hello, I'm Kate Chabot and this is SITREP, your weekly look at the big issues in defence and international affairs. This week, ministers call out the army to try to solve the UK's petrol crisis. Are we too reliant on the forces to deal with civilian emergencies? It says to the public that the government's taking it seriously. I think there is, a, there is a danger for the military that it could be tokenism. America's military chiefs speak out on Afghan withdrawal. I also have a view that the withdrawal of those forces would lead inevitably to the collapse of the Afghan military forces and eventually the Afghan government. And is the military career structure doing more harm than good? The rewards don't support deep specialisation. You either have to be a generalist and grow to the very top or you have to accept the fact that you are not going to advance. For days, government ministers have insisted there is no shortage of fuel in the UK, or at least there wasn't until panic buying set in. The trigger for the huge queues seen at filling stations in the past week was a shortage of lorry drivers. And one potential solution is to turn to the forces. 150 military personnel could start driving petrol tankers at the weekend, according to the business secretary, Kwasi Kwarteng. Anyone versed in military defence issues knows that it takes a couple of days, sometimes a few days, to get troops on the ground. We've decided to do that and I think in the next couple of days people will see some soldiers driving the tanker fleet. It's hardly the first time the government's turned to the military in a crisis. Last year the forces played a big role in response to the pandemic, one that continues today. The army's been called in to help with flooding across the country and back in 2012 had to step in at the last minute to provide security at the London Olympics. So are we too quick to turn to the forces in an emergency? Tobias Elwood chairs the Commons Defence Select Committee. The question that needs to be posed is they are our backup, they are our resilience. Um, If you don't want to call on them, you have to invest even further money, let's say, into flood defences and so forth, that the civilian or the commercial operations can cope. And the question is, is whether there's money available for all those, or whether you actually can resort and are content to resort to using our armed forces. Retired Lieutenant General James Bashel is a former commander home command who oversaw the military response to flooding across large parts of England five years ago. The deployment of the military does two things. I think, first of all, it says to the public that the government's taking it seriously. But actually, for the military, the message is difficult because they have, therefore, to succeed. And it puts a lot of pressure on the military to deliver the tasks that they've been asked to do. And if people expect the problem to get better once the military deploy, the military, therefore, have to have to step up. And the military driving fuel tankers in this short period of time, that prospect is quite tall order, isn't it? Well, actually, since... I can't remember exactly the date when we had that tanker strike, but ever since that time, the military have always had tanker drivers on standby, and it's a constant churn of training and preparing soldiers potentially at any time to be able to, to backfill fuel drivers. Uh, in, in the case of several years ago, it was because there was a strike. So that the army's always had that capability on standby. From your experience, um, what kind of reaction is there when the military is deployed in this kind of situation? Well, it's a very interesting question. In my experience, once the government announced that the military will deploy and service personnel will go to the scene of the, of the issue, 
then there's a great expectation that the problem will be solved. And particularly, I mean, I recall an incident at, at Didcot where we were recovering bodies from a, a very difficult situation and the families were extremely cross about an inability of others to, to do anything. Once it was, they were told that the military was going to help, they then believed the problem would be solved. And that, in turn, puts huge pressure on the military to make sure that they can then deliver. So it's a, it's a difficult, it's a double-edged sword in some ways for, for the military. We know the public are often happy to see the military turn up to the scene of a crisis, and personnel are happy to help, but should one of the richest nations on earth need to turn to the forces quite so often? Well, that's probably a question beyond my pay grade, Kate. But I, I, I've often said to, to you previously that the, the military provide a guaranteed reserve, and I think that's important the nation recognises that. And they are a, a resource that will always be there if, if they're needed. But is there a danger that if the military is increasingly used as a kind of emergency service in the UK, it could be less prepared for its core function? Well, I think its core function is to do some of these tasks now. Homeland resilience, homeland defence has become much more of a focus for the UK armed forces, particularly since most of them now are living and working in the United Kingdom. And I think this is actually more of a core task and therefore important they can do it. The road haulage industry says it's short of 100,000 drivers and the military could be providing 150. So is this a meaningful intervention or, or is it so ministers can say or show that they're actually doing something? I don't know the whole statistics or the logistics of, what's, of what actually is needed and how short we are. I think there is, a, there is a danger for the military that it could be tokenism. But I said I don't, I don't know the, the, the logistic challenge in its totality. And the current system for military aid to civil authorities is pretty ad hoc. Does it need to be formalised, do you think, along the lines of the US National Guard? No, I don't. No, I do think actually it is pretty regularised and formalised in now. And it is, there was a very clear process. The, the, uh, the statute work was re, redone probably 20 years ago and I think has proven itself, particularly during the COVID crisis, and I think it shows that it, it can be delivered by the military as is. And I, don't th I, I personally don't think we need a National Guard construct. Lieutenant General James Bashel there will also join me today as Professor of Defence Studies, Michael Clark. Uh, Michael, calling in the army seems to have become a default government response in recent years. Yes, pretty well every year since uh, 2012 and before, the army's ended up doing something. And uh, the government's got to be careful because, as uh, General Bashel said, on the one hand, it shows the government is serious. But on the other hand, it tends to suggest that they've run out of other options that they turn to the military as a last resort. In the case of the tanker drivers, um, people say, well, you know, 150 drivers, is that enough? Well, it probably is because the shortage of tanker drivers, tanker drivers, is about 250 to 300 drivers. So 150 from the army uh, will actually make quite a big difference. I think this crisis is going to resolve itself, but it puts in place a system that can ramp up the number of drivers in the next three or four weeks as other areas of the supply chain come under pressure. And if the government's going to keep turning to the forces to deal with domestic crises, why do you think it's also cutting the size of the armed forces? Ah, good question. Because here we are again, asking the armed forces to do a bigger range of things on fewer resources, particularly with the army, because the cuts in personnel are all falling on the army, coming down from you know the, the projected eighty-two thousand that we were supposed to regard as a as a, a, a base, um, down to seventy-two thousand five hundred. It doesn't make any any strategic sense to keep cutting the numbers when you're asking people to do more and different things, because all that results in is is the military 
doing multiple tasks and finding that it gets ever more stretched as it tries to cover more bases at the same time. It doesn't make sense. And what do you think about the idea of formalising this into some kind of National Guard, a kind of specific reserve force on standby for emergencies? Well, I, I'm with General Bachelor on that one. We, we've never really had a, a tradition of a National Guard or a gendarmerie in Britain, and I think there are good reasons for that, partly because the military are so well accepted within our own communities. People, people like the military, and that's not true of most other countries. So in a way, our military can do the jobs that the gendarmerie or the National Guard tends to do in other societies, as long as they've got the resources to do it. And our tradition of, 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 of integrating the military within our own communities is a very long tradition, goes back over 150-odd years, 200 years almost. And I think that's something worth trying to pursue rather than replace with something else. This is Zitrap. It's rare for a nation's top military commanders to disagree publicly with their political masters. But that's what's happened this week in Washington. Pentagon leaders admitted the sudden fall of Kabul last month caught them off guard. And they directly contradicted President Biden, saying they warned him not to pull all American troops out of Afghanistan. Paul Osborne has more. Let me call the hearing to order. A tense day in Congress as America's most senior military leaders face questions about Afghanistan's collapse to the Taliban. The evacuation of more than 120,000 people from Kabul was a logistical success, said General Mark Milley, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. But as a whole, Afghanistan was a strategic failure. He said his advice, both to Donald Trump and Joe Biden, was consistent. My assessment was... Uh Back in the fall of 20, and it remained consistent throughout that uh, we should keep a steady state of 2,500, and it could bounce up to 3,500, maybe something like that. Did you ever present that assessment personally to President Biden? I don't discuss exactly what uh, my conversations are with the sitting president in the Oval Office, but I can tell you what my personal opinion was, and I'm okay. always candid. But that contradicts what President Biden told America's ABC News just a few weeks ago. So no one, no one told your military advisors did not tell you, no, we should just keep... 2,500 troops, it's been a stable situation for the last several years. We can do that. We can continue to do that. No, no one said that to me that I can recall. General Milley, that was a false statement by the President of the United States, was it not? I'm not going to categorize the statement of the President of the United States. Kenneth McKenzie, the commander of Central Command, told senators he gave the same advice on troop numbers and set out what could happen if all U.S. personnel withdrew. I also have a view that the withdrawal of those forces would lead inevitably to the collapse of the Afghan military forces and eventually the Afghan government. So why was their advice ignored? General Mark Milley. I firmly believe in swing control of the military, and I am required and the military commanders are required to give our best military advice. But the decision makers are not required in any manner, shape or form to follow that advice. In which case are some senators, why hasn't he resigned? This country doesn't want generals figuring out what orders we are going to accept and do or not. That's not our job. The principle of civilian control of the military is absolute. It's critical to this republic. In addition to that, just from a personal standpoint, you know, my, my dad didn't get a choice to resign at Iwo Jima. And those kids that are at Abbey Gate, they don't get a choice to resign. And I'm not going to turn my back on them. Uh, I, I'm not going to resign. They can't resign, so I'm not going to resign. There's no way. Also at the hearing, U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin defending the president's decision to withdraw while admitting that what followed has raised any number of difficult questions. We didn't fully comprehend the depth of corruption and poor leadership in the senior ranks. That we didn't grasp the damaging effect of frequent and unexplained rotations by President Ghani of his commanders. 
that we didn't anticipate the snowball effect caused by the deals that the Taliban commanders struck with local leaders in the wake of the Doha Agreement, and that the Doha Agreement itself had a demoralizing effect on Afghan soldiers. Now America's military leaders must deal with the fallout from the Taliban's rise, not least the threat that Afghanistan could again become a base for international terrorists. A reconstituted al-Qaeda or ISIS with aspirations to attack the United States is a very real possibility. And those conditions to include activity in ungoverned spaces could present themselves in the next 12 to 36 months. That mission will be much harder now, but not impossible and we will continue to protect the American people. General Milley also admitted the damaging impact it's had on America's global standing. U.S. credibility, he said, is now being questioned by key allies. Paul Osborne reporting. The race to be the next chief of the defence staff is said to be wide open amid reports Boris Johnson has started interviewing candidates to lead the UK's forces. Traditionally, it's a three-year job, but is that long enough? One of the favourites to take over, current First Sea Lord Admiral Satani Radikin, has suggested senior military figures should serve longer terms, giving them a chance to push through meaningful change. And there's a growing debate about career structures across the forces and whether they're delivering the best results. Paul O'Neill is a senior research fellow in military sciences at RUSI. He told me there's a reason why the typical army posting is just two years. The career structure has been developed for a very specific purpose. It was designed to take people from the base rank and over a 30-plus year career groom them for the most senior positions. In the army particularly, the focus is of course on combat, and so it tends to prioritise or preference those with combat experience, and it often can miss out those with deep technical expertise who can feel themselves left to the side as they have to choose between broadening horizontally their careers as technical experts or continuing to climb up through the hierarchy on very short tours. And I think it's that tension that we see at play, particularly in procurement, where we might need people to spend longer developing professional expertise than the current career structure allows. What do you see as a solution? Is it more flexibility? Is it a complete overhaul of the system? For some, it works. I would argue for a large number it doesn't. But there's definitely something about giving people longer in post to become more proficient. There's something about giving people longer in professions, which might be slightly different to in post, because if you keep dipping back into the same kind of role, whether that's acquisition, whether that's HR, whether that's cyber or something else, individual tours could be reasonably short, uh, I would suggest more than two years, to be honest, but could still be relatively short as long as you keep dipping back into it. And I think the work being done at the moment through career fields or professions offers some opportunity to, to make things better. The biggest problem, though, for me is that the rewards don't support deep specialisation. And that's going to be the challenge. You, you either have to be a generalist and grow to the very top or you have to accept the fact that you are not going to advance. And, and it's not just money, although money is a huge issue here. You know, 80 to 90% of your take-home pay is going to be based on your rank, which suggests that there's a huge incentive to continually promote. It's definitely about longer tours for some. It's about dipping into career anchors and growing professionalism within a, a specific career field or profession. 
But I think it's also something about rank and status and pay that also needs to be addressed. Can you actually suggest a solution to that if, if rank is so important. You choose to stay in a role, develop a specialism, the trade office, it will, at the moment, harm your career prospects. The armed forces, of course, wear their rank on their sleeves. uh, And so it's very visible the status you have in your organisation. If rank isn't available, maybe the forces need to consider, is there something else that can be a visible indicator of professional status? And if I look at the Royal Air Force, the idea of master air crew, uh, with a very special type of badge, was indeed that. It was an attempt to say that this person was aircrew, but they were a master at that role. And that's where the origin of the master aircrew badge comes from, to suggest it may not be the rank, but there's a degree of professional qualification attached to to that rank. I mean, the suggestion certainly is for the future that there will be much more of a reliance on specialists. Uh, How willing do you feel the armed forces are to make the changes you're suggesting? To be honest, they've struggled so far. There was an attempt back in the... Uh, around about the 2010 Strategic Defence and Security Review called the New Employment Model to lengthen tour lengths. Uh, Not operational tour lengths, but there is all the peacetime tour lengths. It started off trying to move them to three to four to five years, and we seem to have reverted back to around about two years. So whilst a lot of the talk is about individual tour lengths, I think there's something much more structural in here that needs to be addressed uh, to help incentivise the kind of professionalism the armed forces say they need. And what about the most senior roles? The first sea lord has suggested the people at the top of the forces should get longer terms to drive through significant changes. Would you agree with that? I think there's absolutely an element of truth in that, that uh, you have uh, very senior leaders, and I I would take two stars and above because they're subject to a different uh, appraisal system, They have very short periods of time in rank and indeed they're appraised on an annual basis. So there is pressure for them to write their objectives on delivering in a specific year because that's how their performance bonus is paid. But it tends to drag them down then to very tactical kind of actions. So yes, give them longer in post, although there's a downside. If you make the first sea lord the first sea lord for five years, that would deny one person an expectation of becoming first sea lord. So it would slow down the career path for everybody else. Whoever you get as the chief of the defence staff, and they will undoubtedly be a very talented individual to have got to four star, they will have limitations as we all do. So I think we need to start thinking about some of our more senior appointments as part of a collective appointment, because you would want to choose a vice chief who was able to compensate for some of the Uh, some of the developmental areas or some of the weaker areas the chief might have. And similarly, you might want to have a chief who was able to, uh, to drive forward some change, perhaps in a very radical way, but perhaps balanced by a vice chief who was able to act as a little bit of a break on some of the more radical ideas. Or indeed vice versa, maybe have a radical vice chief, but a chief who was able to, to smooth out some of the more radical thinking. So it's actually deliverable. Paul O'Neill from Rusi. Well, let's pick that up with Professor Michael Clark. Michael, it's a bizarre choice to present to people. If you choose to develop a specialism, your career stalls and you'll be paid less. 
Yes, and it's one of the problems of having small armed forces. You don't have this problem to anything like the same extent in the American military because there's room for more career development in a bigger force because you've got the specialism. And the, the other thing that Paul said, which is really important, I think, is that we're moving into an era where we say we will want our armed forces to be far more specialised. So we've got to resolve this conundrum. I mean, at the, at the moment, the problem is that, that real advancement for senior officers is based on command experience. Everyone wants to be in the field commanding, preferably in, a, in combat or combat-related operations. And that's only available to a few. And we've got to recognise the importance of other people who, for accidental reasons, just don't get a, a shot at, at that sort of experience. And what do you make of Admiral Satani Radikin's suggestion that senior military leaders need longer terms to get things done? Well, he's absolutely right if they're going to get things done. I mean, we're caught in a way between two ideas of what a chief of a service should be. Are they there to represent the service? Well, yes, they certainly are to speak for it. That's like being chairman of the board in a company. Or are they there to manage the service as a chief executive officer? And of course, no company CEO would say you can get anything done in three years. If you're going to manage a, a, a company or create change or make it more profitable or leaner or whatever it might be, you, you'd need five or six years to do it, even to begin to do it. And so we're caught between this idea of a chief as a, a representative of the service and a chief as the manager of the service. And we've never really reconciled that. And again, as Paul says, you know, people want a shot at the, ch at the top job. And so this rotation three yearly seems to be baked into it because, you know, somebody else uh, want, wants a chance to represent their service at the very top level. And the first Sea Lord is seen as one of the front runners to be the next CDS. Five names seem to be in the frame, the heads of the Navy, Army and Air Force, plus the head of Strategic Command and the man who led the Kabul evacuation. Yes, Ben Kay, Vice Admiral Ben Kay, he's a three-star. He's the uh, commander of uh, joint operations at the moment. And it is believed that the Prime Minister, who of course will make this decision, has probably already made it, to be honest, that he's attracted to the, to the idea of going to somebody who's a three-star rather than a four-star to just skip a generation. And he was certainly impressed by the way Operation Pitting was handled. And so, you know, Ben Key is certainly in the frame. And, uh, well, we'll see. I think we're going to hear fairly soon, I would imagine. And one suggestion is that it's the Navy's turn to provide a CDS, is that likely to be a deciding factor? <laughs> well, it certainly shouldn't be. I mean, it's it's true that the Navy hasn't had a CDS since uh, 2001. That was uh, Mike Boyce, who was the CDS then. And since then, there have been, by my calculation, uh, six CDSs, and uh, two of them have been RAF and four of them have been Army. So, yes, it's the Navy's turn. But, I mean, long ago, we stopped saying that it was a Buggins' turn job. So I, I think you know, a naval element may feature in it, and certainly, certainly Tony Radikin is undoubtedly one of the front and Ben Kay is another. So they've got sort of two out of five possibilities are there. Uh, so it might be a naval appointment this time, but the, the Buggins term principle should certainly be ditched. Michael, stay with us. When America elects a president, it attracts huge attention in the UK. But when Germany chooses its leaders, there are few all-night election parties. But as Angela Merkel prepares to step down after 16 years as Chancellor, the question of her successor is important, not least for NATO. Her replacement will depend on support from rival parties, some of whom take a different view on some key defence issues. Galinda Greutel is Associate Professor of International Politics and Transatlantic Relations at the University of Regensburg. She told me about the man most likely to emerge as Germany's next leader. 
So Olaf Scholz had the Social Democrats. Um, he was part of uh, the coalition government with Chancellor Merkel before. So he's no stranger. Uh, he's well known in Germany and beyond. So what people think of him is that he is a very solid person, uh, Merkel-esque in a sense, uh, that he is uh, quiet, facts-based, uh, working on the issues, uh, even though in his own party there are many who stand far left to Olaf Scholz. So it will be interesting to see uh, whether his own party and the coalition that he's most likely to lead between the Greens and the Liberal Democrats, uh, whether they will follow a more um, middle of the road line or will be uh, rather going left in some policy issues. Yes, and in terms of NATO, Germany's main parties have a commitment to the alliance, but that, does that apply to all the smaller potential coalition partners? The most likely coalitions are um, with the Greens and the Liberal Democrats, and they will all either be in a coalition with, as I mentioned, the Social Democrats, headed by Olaf Scholz, or the Christian Conservatives. They could also form a majority. Um, all of these parties uh, that are most likely to be in the next government. Uh, they are pro-NATO. They have a solid commitment to Germany taking more responsibility abroad. Uh, so we can expect continuity on that front, even though in, uh, in all of these parties, obviously, there are various voices, various wings. Uh, but by and large, um, the big picture is continuity and two of the smaller potential coalition partners, the Greens and the Free Democrats, support a tougher line on China, which would probably go down well in Washington. Uh, yes, this is very interesting to see that there are agreements. Um, the Greens have a very strong um, moral voice, uh, so they care a lot about human rights. Uh, they care a lot about democracy, and they call for really vigorous opposition to authoritarian powers, be it Russia or China, and we have the same in the Free Democrats uh, Party. Um, so there will be commonalities here, but the bigger picture um, really is how Europe positions itself towards China. Germany obviously plays a big role, uh, but the European consensus is what matters to decide whether Europe is a good partner for Washington vis-a-vis -vis China. And there's a perception in the UK that Germany is reluctant to play a significant role in overseas military deployments. Is that still the case? Uh, yes, overseas military deployments has been a major difficult issue for Germany uh, ever since these occurred as a policy issue in the 1990s. On the one hand, Germany is very committed to its alliances. Uh, Germany tries to be a good ally and it's um, really a, a never alone posture is part of the German political DNA. Uh, but at the same time, there is a very widespread popular reluctance to get involved. Uh, there is a hesitancy that scholars frame as a civilian power mentality. Uh, Germans prefer civilian, financial, economic, diplomatic means to deal with crises. Uh, so making the case for military operations is really a tough job politically. Uh, and this has not changed. So Chancellor Merkel's successor really has a tough job to do to make the case that there is a need for more commitment, there is a need to step up, and this also includes sometimes the use of military force and co cooperation in 
stabilization operations, deterrence efforts, and so on and so forth. Galinda Greutel speaking to me earlier. Professor Michael Clark, the, the next German government has to decide whether to replace a fleet of ageing tornado aircraft which form part of NATO's nuclear umbrella. Those potential coalition partners are in favour of abolishing nuclear weapons. Yes, and it's not only that. I mean, the, the, the tornado replacement for Germany is a, a, it's Germany's version of the future combat air system like our Tempest. And it isn't just Germany. It's a, Frank, a, a French-German-Spanish arrangement. So it's three countries to replace Raphael and Tornado aircraft. And it isn't just that they have a nuclear role, but that the future combat air system is also about robots. It's about having drones connected to the central aircraft, as indeed our, our system is as well, or is, is likely to be. And the Greens have already come out against autonomous weapon systems as well as nuclear systems. So uh, the Tornado replacement will be a really difficult issue for the Greens if they're in this traffic-like coalition, which I'm sure they will be with SPD and the FDP, the Free Democrats and the Greens, a really difficult issue for them because it isn't just nuclear, it's nuclear and autonomous systems and it isn't just Germany's choice, it's Germany, France and Spain. And the French will have no truck with a, a German government that wants to have a, a new system that is not nuclear and is not based on some autonomous weapon systems going with it. It's a really hard one for them. Uh, Michael, before we go, after all the rows around the defence pact between Britain, the US and Australia, this week the UK has confirmed it's starting talks on a deeper relationship with Japan. That's not entirely surprising, is it? No, it was always anticipated. We've had a very good relationship with Japan over recent years, the last five or five or six years. It gets deeper all the time. The Jap and mainly we've always wanted a better relationship. Japan was much more cautious because they're cautious about military and nuclear issues. And so these talks are now a logical extension to the AUKUS pact between America, Britain uh, and Australia. Uh, again, it will further undermine our relations with France, but it's logical. And there's a great deal we can do with Japan, both technologically as well as in cooperation between our armed forces. Uh, our military relations with Japan are very good. Indeed, they always were. Apart from the Second World War, we always had very good relations with Japan in the early part of the 20th century, the First World War, the 1920s. It was only in the 30s that it really went wrong for all sorts of reasons that we know about. Professor Michael Clark, thank you. And that is it for this week. Thanks to all of my guests. You can keep in touch with us on Twitter. We're at BFBS SITREP and at bfbs.com slash SITREP. You can listen back to past programmes and find links to subscribe to the podcast. For now, though, from me, Kate Chabot, thank you for listening and goodbye.